This week on Dig Me Out, it's a roundtable discussion on concerts of the 90s. Joining Tim and Jay are guests Jeff Takis, David Gorgos, and your announcer, yours truly, Katie Minichi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, it's episode 230, and we are doing our June roundtable discussion. I love these. Yes, this is when our podcast expands. We bring in a whole bunch of people to discuss a topic relevant to the 90s. Uh, we've done number of cool ones and we've got another very cool episode this week we're gonna be talking about concerts of the 1990s both their own personal experiences and then also some some sort of general topics involving 90s concerts and jay in order for us to do that we have to have special guests joining us so of course it wouldn't be a round table with two people exactly just be me and you staring into each other's eyes as we do (laughs) so like what we like to do is we like to bring in vets and we also like to bring in rookies like to, we like to have a, a nice mixture of veteran talent and uh, rookie uh, fresh off the uh, waiver wire or draft table. I don't know where it's going with that. Anyway, joining us from uh, New Jersey, returning champ, Mr. David Dirty Gert Gorgos. David, how are you this evening? Oh, hello. Doing very well. Thank you. I remember that you worked in a record store in New York City. That's that was my remembrance from our discussion previously when you joined us for the uh for the what was the episode again? Yeah. My god, my brain. Uh, for Space Needle. Space Needle, that's right. New York Band. Yeah. New York Band. Am I forgetting what else what else there was the there was the record well, store? Yeah, from uh from 91 to 95 I uh was in college and worked at the radio station. That's right. At SUNY Purchase, uh, was the music director there, so saw a lot of concerts from that, and then yeah, I worked at uh, Kim's Underground in the late 90s. That's right. Okay. I knew there was some record store stuff, and I couldn't remember where it was. And I couldn't, fi- I couldn't figure out what episode you want, so I couldn't go back and revisit your explanation from the previous one. So I will, um, I'm going to put that in the, in the uh, HR department's uh, notes for future reference. Wait a minute. You're saying on our site search, if you enter Dirty Gert, the show doesn't come up? No, a bunch of shows come up because uh-huh. <laughs> because he's suggested about five episodes or six episodes. I see. I see. So I couldn't figure out which one it was because I didn't. Gotcha. I don't think I included in the description that he joined us. Gotcha. Um, so I was like, was it sports guitar? Was it Radial Spangle? Was it Eric's Trip? It was very. I was very confused. Yeah. The stuff I dug out was so obscure, you can't even dig it out of your own podcast. I can't. We can't. (laughs) It goes down the rabbit hole. Also joining us for the first time from uh, Tallahassee, Florida, host of the Rocket Fuel podcast, writer for punktastic.com, Mr. Jeff Takis. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about uh, your podcast and uh, Punktastic. Yeah, well... um... 
the Rocket Fuel podcast is basically uh, focusing on new, uh, you know, punk, ska, and indie music uh, that's coming out. I have bands come on, and I'll review records, I'll interview bands, I'll play a bunch of tunes, and uh, I try to put out an episode uh, once a month or so, and actually I'm just coming back uh, from a pretty long hiatus of taking some time off uh, from that, so uh, pretty stoked to, to be back doing that. And uh, the work I do for punktastic.com is... Uh, I have a column uh, that listeners to Dig Me Out should be interested in called Back to the Buzzbin, where I uh, take a band from the 90s that I didn't think got enough love, and I basically tell their story in kind of an in-depth way. Uh, I'll interview one of the band members and, uh, you know, just tell that band's story from beginning to end and uh, try to do them justice. So and I that's... think the, the one that I read was Ruth Ruth. Is that the one, the first one that you did? Yeah, that's the first one that I did, and um, I have one that should be coming out uh, this week uh, on the website on the um, Miami punk band Quit. Um, they were really great, and uh, was uh, was fun to get to do that one too. And, and I just loved Ruth Ruth so much, um, you know, as a high schooler and in my college years that it was really a cool experience to uh, get to talk with Chris Kennedy from that band, and, and uh, again try to you know do the band justice in telling their story. Cool. That's and that's a band that I think that their at their first album, Laughing Gallery, that'd yeah. be a good one for us to uh, review at some point. I totally agree. And then also joining us is uh, I guess the voice of Dig Me Out, the person who intros us and outros us and does all of our jingles. My wife, Katie. Hi. You're back for your first episode since Chibo Mato. And I'll be mentioning Chibo Mato this evening. Oh, you will. Yeah. How about that? It's on my worksheet. Are you on their payroll? <laughs> I know. Always with the Chibo motto. Jeez. Somebody's got to bring them up. We got it. We get it. <laughs> the 90s were about women, Jay. Were they? They were. They kind of were. Yeah. Well, we'll be doing an episode on women of the 90s. I'll come back for that one. Well, it's actually, it's all men. We're going to be doing that episode. So. Yeah. I will, I'm irony. always up for the estrogen. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very ironic podcast in that we have uh, an all-male panel for that i'm actually what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna do a half hour with all men and then i'm gonna do a half hour with all women oh i just thought of of that on the the spot an hour mark i'll bring in scones yeah there we go thank you scones (laughs) seriously (laughs) we're gonna get flamed if we do that episode with all guys i know Trust me, I've it. already considered it's it's like six months away and I'm already I'm gonna make like sweating eight about anonymous it. names. <laughs> how about we you. how about we um worry about that one when, when that one is I a, don't have any credentials is a by disaster. the way. I'm just his wife. Well you're a music teacher. You actually sure. know what a, uh, what goes on a music staff. Yeah, but I don't really need that for tonight. Well what you need is to have gone to concerts in the nineties and that's what you've done. That's what we've all done. That's why we're in this virtual room. On this, I'm at this virtual roundtable, yes, it's going to be a lovely evening. So, what I'd like to do is, I'd like to start on a positive and go around and ask everybody their fa- one of their favorite concerts, and give me a little story about why um, from the 1990s. Jeff, since you are new, I'm going to start with you. Tell me one of your favorite concerts from the 1990s. Sure, and and I had kind of come up with a list of some of my favorites from from that era, but the one I want to mention first is um, it was actually like the very first like real show that I ever went to it was for my 16th birthday. My brother got me tickets to see They Might Be Giants uh, when they were um, touring in support of John Henry, and um, the two openers for that uh, particular show were Frank Black 
and the band Frente. And uh, that was like my real first concert experience. I was and still am a huge fan of They Might Be Giants. And uh, it was really an awesome experience um, to have my first, you know, kind of real show be uh, with that band. And, and with those openers, um, you know, obviously Frank Black is, is a legend and, and uh, you know, Frente was fun too. So uh, really a memorable show, one that sticks to, with me uh, all these years later. Uh, when was that one was like do you remember what frank black album he was touring for it was probably teenager of the year would be my guess okay the thing that sticks out from from his performance was that he had a series of guitars um and he had a guitar for each song of his set (laughs) and instead of like taking the guitar off and you know, picking up the next one, he would just sling it around his back and then pick up the next guitar, play the next song, sling it around the other shoulder. And like at the end of the thing, he was like, you know, just like buried in guitars. It was it was pretty awesome. It was kind of like one of these things where as he kept going, like the whole crowd was like trying to figure out of how he was going to figure out where to put the next one. So um, that's insane. So that, that was really. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> And it was a it was a crazy uh, a crazy time, and and I wasn't that huge of a fan of his. I knew of him, but wasn't you know uh, you know a huge fan um, of his, and and that was really really fun and really a great thing to see. Well, yeah, I imagine it as being a sixteen year old, you're probably not that familiar with the Pixies, right? Right, and I and I wasn't. I mean, again, I knew of them, but uh, you know, wasn't uh, you know hadn't spent a lot of time with Pixies records as I have now, and um, it's. Uh, you know, again, kind of one of those things where it's like in hindsight, you know, wow, I got to see Frank Black, you know, do do a solo set. Uh, and he was the first opener of the night. Uh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. Huh. David, how about you? Oh, uh, well, you know, in retrospect, it's usually the uh, historic shows that you remember as opposed to what was actually a great concert. Mm-hmm. So since my favorite band of all time is The Fall, I got to see them at Coney Island High in the late 90s. Uh, and Marky Smith, the uh, very unstable leader of the band, uh, showed up with several missing teeth and uh, <laughs> sort of slurred through a whole show. And th- this was before smartphones and things like that, so n- none of us knew what the hell was going on. And later found out that he had gotten to a fight outside, uh, was deeply into vodka, and fired the whole band the next week. So wow. I got to see the uh, dismantling of yet another lineup of the fall. <laughs> Which was probably, what, like the 6th or 7th? Yeah, around there. Okay. Around there. And and there's a reason the fall has not come up on your podcast, because the 90s were not a good period for them. No, no, not for the fall. Katie, why don't you uh, tell us one of your favorite concerts of the 90s? All right. Well, Tim's already heard this one, but um, in 97... Right after OK Computer came out, I saw Radiohead in a high school auditorium about 40 minutes from my house. and um, Which is in Cleveland. But Yeah, which is near Cleveland. So it was in Lakewood. And um, they just did first come, first serve. There was no reserve seating. So my friends got there really early with me. And we were in like the third row. And yeah, it was, it was pretty iconic. It's pretty amazing to get to see that. I think that concert might come up again in our... It probably list. will. I've seen some for, other great ones, but for, but for that really reasons. sticks out as a '90s concert. Jay, how about you? Probably uh, those two wig shows that we saw uh, mm-hmm. in the late '90s: the Cincinnati show and the Columbus show. Just because 
they uh that was the a lineup of the band that I think from a live standpoint was was great. You had, you know, original members plus the addition of the backup singers plus the you know, the piano player. It was like a full ensemble and uh so they could do a lot of different material. It was loose but still, you know, it sounded cohesive um cuz they went off on some jams that were kind of cool and did some interspersed some covers here and there and uh, I think in Cincinnati they came out to the boys are back in town, which was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, those two just I just remember them being a real good time, and I think around the same time I well we'll get to this one, but yeah, I mean those two I think were really good, and I think they were the the hallmark of them being good is I don't even remember who opened the shows, either of the two shows, just because <laughs> it was so I don't know it was so much about them that it didn't even matter. Well, in Cincinnati, it was Holland Maggie. Okay. Because yeah. uh, Happy Chichester came out and played third guitar on The Boys Are Back in Town. Right. So for mine, I picked, uh, I went to the College Music Journal Festival, CMJ, in 96, and I got to see a lot of bands, but the show that sticks in my mind is probably the best thing I saw in the 90s was Johnny Cash opened for Wilco. And so it was a great show. This is the first time I ever had a chance to see Wilco live, and I ended up seeing them like three or four more times in the 90s. And the cool thing is that not only did I get to see Johnny Cash, who was amazing, I had no preconceived ideas of Johnny Cash at that point. I just knew that he was this guy that was putting out records with Rick Rubin. I didn't have the backstory on him. I wasn't into country music. So I was like second. It was Irving Plaza, very small, and I was standing like second row from Johnny Cash, it basically almost touched the guy from where I was standing. And then halfway through the set, June Carter Cash came out and sang with him. You know, a really cool show. And then Wilco came out, and this is before Being There came out, the second album, the double album. And they were good, but there's a lot of songs that people didn't know, and it was kind of a weird crowd. Years later, I read the book by Greg Cott. It's called uh, Learning How to Die. It's basically the history of Wilco into the 2000s and they specifically talk about that show because the funny part about it is Wilco was actually supposed to open and Johnny Cash was supposed to be the headliner but before the show Johnny Cash's management said um Johnny's not feeling well he'd really like to go back home back to the hotel as soon as possible would it be okay if Johnny opened the set he just doesn't think he can make it through the whole night and they were like oh yeah of course um, have him have him open up. That's no that's no problem. So Johnny comes out. He plays an amazing set, and he comes backstage, and they're like, "Hey, you sounded great." And he's like, "Thanks." 
I feel great now. And he's they're like, oh, we heard you weren't feeling well. He's like, no, nah, I just like to get to the crowd when they're really hot. And the crowd was really hot. So I wanted to go out and open. <laughs> so, he, so he played Wilco. And then Wilco went out and played like basically a really kind of average set. And Jeff Tweedy, I remember this came out and he said, I don't know how to follow Johnny Cash. You don't. No, you don't follow Johnny Cash. So let's throw this in reverse. I want to ask everybody about their favorite music venue that they went to in the 90s. Jay, I'm going to start with you since I just let off from you. I always loved the um, sort of the large club. And there was one in Lakewood called Flashes. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a model of Little Brothers. No, it was more like the El Rosa Villa, I guess, in Columbus to give you reference. But it was um, – I'm sure every every town had one of these where, you know, at a high stage had, had a um, – sort of a big open floor and then they would have seating around just like a a couple you know a rail uh, have a railing and seating all the way around and then a bar in the back and it just i don't know you got the intimacy of, the, of a club but yet you know if you wanted to go kind of just chill you could go up to one of the tables but if you wanted to be on the floor you could do that and the sound was always good because it was um it was kind of big so they usually have a you know a, a good sound system but it wasn't so big that it was like, you know, when you get into maybe a theater or obviously arena where it becomes like cavernous sounding. So I don't know. It just seems like every show I saw that place um, was always good just because of the venue, even if the bands were average or not great. Katie, your favorite venue? Um, since we're talking about the 90s, I would say my favorite venue would have to be Blossom just because so many other good shows I saw were there. And and Blossom is a is in a... It's a large outdoor, outdoor arena yeah. shed in um, the suburbs of Cleveland. Is it Richfield? It's in Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga. Yeah. And I'm sure, again, like Jay said, pretty much every major city probably has one like it. Yeah. But um, it'll it'll come back around later. I know one of your later questions will address this, but I just, every time I've seen a bigger band, I've always been happier to see them outside than in a stadium. So I just, I really like Blossom a lot. Okay. David, how about you, your favorite music venue of the 90s? Uh, I was going through a list of everything I could remember from the 90s, and everything in New York City is closed. Huh. Um, CB's was best for noise, but uh, Hilly was a terrible booker. Um, Tramps was a solid mid-sized venue. Roseland was the best of the big places. Um, Fez had a great, intimate downstairs stage. Um, but... Uh, Thinking back, my favorite place was Brownies, which oh, was yeah. the Lower East Side. Um, you know, they they had the bar sort of in the back area, so the people who cared were up front, and the sound guy always had a dog there, and I loved petting that dog. Um, <laughs> That's in, cool. In Philly right now, Kung Fu Necktie is the closest thing to Brownies that uh, that I've discovered, where it has really good loud sound, and you know that that the, the people who want to talk can do it further away. So you can actually pay attention to the band if you care, and you can get a drink if you don't care. That, that that's that that's the best combo that you can get. And that's a great name, Kung Fu Necktie. Yep. Jeff, how about you? Favorite music venue of the '90s? The uh, one that comes to to mind is uh, a venue in Orlando, Florida, which is where I went to college, called the Sapphire Supper Club. It's changed names several times, and frankly, I haven't been back since my college days, so I can't really attest to what it's like now but um it was just one of those venues where you know it was a a smaller but not tiny 
you know, kind of a venue that the stage was not very high up um, from like where the, the, the pit would be. Um, but yet there was still a raised an elevated level, like where the bars were. So if you were, you know, kind of a, you know, stand by the bar and, and watch the, the band while you have a drink or two, um, it would have been a good venue. But if you were, you know, like me in my younger days wanting to, you know, throw down in a, in a mosh pit, you could do that too. Um, uh, in that, in that area. And, uh, just so many shows that I got to, to see, uh, in my, my college days that that's a, a really, um, uh, a fond, memory place for me cool well i i'm picking one that uh jay and i visited not too long well actually a couple years ago it's the majestic theater in detroit this is a converted church from many years ago and it holds about a thousand people there's no seating it's just all standing room and it has a really wide stage and the bar is in the back in a 12 month span between 95 and 96 or 96 97 um, I saw Wilco, Sunvolt, and Golden Smog all in a row. And what was cool is that the bands would often just get off stage, walk off to the side, and then come down and go straight to the bar. So, like, for the Golden Smog show, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that band, but it was basically a super group with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, Dan Murphy of Soul Asylum, Gary Loris of the Jayhawks, and they would get drunk and play covers and make some records and occasionally some guys like Jody Stevens from big star would play with them or um, Dave Perner from soul asylum. And they get random people doing some songs with them. They just all got off stage and came down and drank beers with the audience. And it was just like, it was a very communal kind of feeling to that place where you could kind of hang out with the bar. And it wasn't a overly big place where you felt like if you were standing in the wrong place, you're going to get a bad sound. Like everywhere in that venue had a good sound. And then in, I think back in 08, Jay and I drove up here to see the Manic Street Preachers when they did their last uh, tour in the U.S. So I, even when I'm not even near it, I'm still going to drive there to go see shows. So that's my favorite uh, venue. Let's talk about this is a, sort of a subtopic that I, I rushed out to everybody the other day. Openers that you saw that blew away the li- the uh, headlining band. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this one. It's another one of my CMJ shows. There was a band that was in '96 getting a lot of publicity on the college radio circuit. And they're called Emmett Swimming. They're sort of in the same vein as like Toad the Wet Sprocket and Big Head Todd the Monsters and sort of that like middle of the road kind of alternative rock. And they were playing at the Wetlands. I don't know if you remember that venue, David. Oh yeah. Uh, um, so they were playing, and the opening band was this. Uh, British band called Pusher Man, and I was—I had my back turned. I wasn't even really paying attention, and all of a sudden they started playing, and it was like ten guys on stage. They had like three guitar players. They had a harmonica player. They had a guy who was just like playing bongos, and they're playing this like twelve-minute-long version of Oasis songs on heroin. Like it was Brit pop, but it was influenced by like a lot of really druggy. 70s music it just blew my mind when i saw them i immediately got their cd they've been a band that i've always loved ever since that show that was that was a perfect example of like seeing the band live having no idea who they were and like being blown away and falling in love with the band and i've always really really loved that band i think we reviewed them about two years ago 
on the show. They only made one album and then they broke up and then the lead singer died and then the guitar player died and people passed away from drugs and whatnot. So, uh, but it was Pusher Man at Wetlands. Uh, Jeff, tell me when an opener kicked the headliner's ass. Yeah, and it's um, the, it kind of struck me like lightning as you were talking to him about what kind of a band, you know, did that for me. And 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 the lightning bolt that struck was I was in uh, seeing a show in Philly, which is where I was um, born and raised. I was going to see the Toasters, you know, pretty legendary New York ska band um, who had been around from, you know, the the 80s and and is still going strong today. And one of the openers that night was a band I'd never heard of from Connecticut called Springheel Jack. And um, they were unbelievable. Um, Just the energy um, that they had, the, the just the musicianship. It was just one of those things where it's like your jaw was on the ground, um, the entire time with how good this band was. And, and the, the image that still comes to my mind when I think about their set was their uh, trumpet player, Tyler, at one point during the show, like snuck off stage, like when it wasn't like his part in a song. And you're like, okay, well, that guy just left, whatever. And then all of a sudden he reemerged up in the balcony of the, the you know, the theater and he was able to play so loudly without a microphone that he it was his like you know spot for a solo and he just wailed and it was just like again just jaw dropping uh the entire time um that band um later um they put out two records uh before they uh called it quits and uh their members have gone on to like the trombone player plays in the Boston's now um their saxophone player plays in less than jake now and so they they they've been able to keep going uh, in other bands but uh they put out two uh great albums uh before they they called it quits and and uh an odd note they had to add the moniker usa to the end of their band because there was another band in England called Springheel Jack. What? So to avoid all of the, you know, lawsuit nonsense, they ended up changing their name to Springheel Jack USA. So uh, that's that's that band. Hmm. Uh, that set uh, still uh, kind of knocks my socks off when I think about it. That's crazy. Yeah. There was another band with that same name. Is that a is reference that- to something? Is like there is that like a character from a movie or something? Yeah, and I think it's a. As oddly as it sounds, I want to say it's like a a, a, re- a reference to like a serial killer, like an old English serial killer. I don't even uh, know. I'm way off base on that, but it is some kind of character. Yeah. Okay. David, tell us when an opener blew away the headliner to show you were at. Uh, when uh, you know Bob Mould periodically goes into a an acoustic mode when his ears are ringing or whatever. And he, you know, just goes around touring solo with a, a, just a 12-string guitar. Saw him play at Bogies in Albany. And he had taken an artist under the wing, under his wings called Vic Chestnut. And hmm. Vic Chestnut, uh, I, I think his only album out was Little at the time. Uh, you know, Paralyzed in his wheelchair comes out with just a simple six-string guitar and breaks everyone's heart at a seated show. Uh, and I, I, wow. I think that tour is probably what launched his career. Because uh, I, I know I went right out and bought the, the the Chestnut album on Texas Hotel Records and was a fan up until his death. Wow, that's cool. Jay, how about you? What's the concert 
I guess I'm going to say um, Life, Sex, and Death just because it was one of those, they're one of those bands that just so bizarre and um, such high musicianship, but also really hooky and a very unique stage presence. You got to explain and that for everybody so they, so don't, so they know. The, the, uh, we reviewed this band. You can go search the episode to get the full gist on them. But basically the singer is a was a homeless guy, or at least whether you believe or not, he was really homeless. His character was a homeless guy. He smelled he just, like it. Yeah, he just would, you know. And so I saw them uh, with the intent. I went to see Lynch Mob. So this is 1992. Nice. So I'm still hanging on to the, you know, to the 80s bands and 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 uh, that stuff's fading. But you know, um, metal fans are loyal, so I'm still there. And you're just sitting there waiting for the show, and the lights, the house lights are on, and this guy just he's wandering around the audience, and you're like, you just figure it's some dude who kind of snuck in the back door and whatever. And he just wanders up on stage and pulls out a ukulele and starts playing. And you're like, what the F is going on? Like they're, you're expecting this guy to get tackled at any moment. (laughs) And, uh, all of a sudden this, you know, feedback starts and the band, these guys come like out and jump on top of their amps and just go ape shit for 45 minutes. And it was just, mind-blowing and totally unexpected i think is what what made it so uh stand out so much i don't even know what lynch mob sounded like after that because i was so like (laughs) fascinated with this band that uh that's all i could think about and immediately went out and got the record and and uh yeah been a big fan ever since so let's um let's flip it and let's instead of talking about our favorite and things good things that happen let's talk about bad things um, let's start with uh, the worst concert that we went to in the 90s. For whatever reason you want to deem it your worst experience, you know, explain away. But um, Katie, I'm going to start with you. Worst concert experience of the thank 90s. You, uh, I think you might have skipped me on that last one. Oh, did headliners. I? Yeah, you, I'm sorry. Go with the headliners. You sure did. Uh, what be- was your headliners? Before I answer, I did look up on Wikipedia <laughs> Spring Hill Jack. Okay. Um, so it's a Victorian era English folklore he was like a devil type character that could make these long leaps. Oh, it okay. dates back to 1837. Oh, so spring healed, like his heels spring had healed. springs. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The actual reference is spring healed, Jack. Okay. Just thought so, I'd drop that. Opener that blew away the headliner. Well, you know, I had to share this because Jay's here. Um, it was Chibo Motto for Luscious Jackson. <laughs> Chibo Motto blew away Luscious Jackson? Well, you know, Luscious Jackson was great, they were great. But Chibamato came out with so much energy and... Um, like a pep, high school pep Right? Squad? It was kind of like a pep rally. It And, and I wasn't as familiar with them at the time. Um, so to just be that taken by a band I wasn't familiar with. As okay. a high schooler, that's tough to do. Gotcha. So now what's your worst concert? Uh, well, you know, this goes slightly into the 2000s. So I have to preface by saying it kind of breaks the rules slightly, but it's worth it. Um, I went to... I intentionally went to see bare naked ladies and guster which you know might mean i have to leave the panel but what was the worst was that I just everclear a, i just talked about a lynch mob concert you're you're fine it's true <laughs> everclear opened for guster and bare naked ladies and Ooh. they were so unwatchable and they were sort of like the american oasis um in their bravado so you know he was saying like I'm the voice of this generation. And then like started 
singing Father of Mine. It was it was so oh. it was so bad that it was almost watchable just because you couldn't look like, away. It was, it was like funny. it was like a car crash. Yeah. Okay. You couldn't stop watching. David, how about you? Worst concert experience of the nineties? I think it was a CMJ concert. And uh, Warner Brothers had the foresight to know that Flaming Lips were their future. That Flaming Lips were going to be this huge band. And I think it was uh, Hit to Death and the Future Head had just come out. And so they headlined. But the opener was Green Day. And I guess this had been booked before Dookie hit. So when the show comes on, it is just overwhelmed with Green Day fans. I, I believe Billy Joe at some point dropped his pants and started masturbating on stage. Um, I am not a Green Day fan at all, and it was not a great show. And then when Flaming Lips came on headlining, uh, they, they got booed. They got an, a huge and different attitude from the, the huge audience uh, at the Academy in New York. And it was just very upsetting to me all around. Wow. I would imagine that you could describe those fans as snot-nosed punks or snot-nosed kids. I believe there was a lot of snot and Uh, other fluids. Yes. Disgusting. Jeff, how about you? Worst concert experience in the 90s? You know, it's it's tough because I didn't subject myself to like shows where I knew it was going to be bad. Kind of like what Katie was talking about, like by going to see very <laughs> naked ladies and Guster. Like I never did a show like that, but I do want to mention on the other end of that spectrum, since Everclear came up, I did want to mention getting to see Everclear like before they just exploded all over the place. They had only put out one record at the time, uh, which is, uh, you know, just uh, one of my favorite records, I know, which is crazy to say, but the you know, the very first Everclear record is so different than the rest of their discography mm-hmm. that it's like almost like two different bands. But they they played a small club in Philadelphia called J.C. Dobbs. And actually, ironically, Ruth Ruth was the band that opened for them that night and and that was on the other end of the spectrum for me as far as it was really an awesome show, but I had to give a, a mild counterpoint to, to Katie. Um, I later <laughs> saw, I later saw Everclear after they blew up and I can totally understand like how they could like, they, I don't know how they evolved to be as awful as they were, but I remember like, you know, it was one of those like moments where like it was a huge, you know, it was like it was at the electric factory in Philadelphia, a big venue. And I swear that like art had like fans like like blowing on him to like have some kind mm-hmm. of effect with the fog and his hair and stuff. And so totally different from like, you know, the that like slightly, you know, punkish band that Everclear was when they uh, when they started um, so I had to I had to give that that kind of story. I don't really have like a a worst show uh, <laughs> say, but I wanted to offer that up. Fair enough. Jay, how about you? Uh, I'm kind of with Jeff. I, I I I don't have any that were just horrendous. I mean, maybe because I don't know. We sat through so many bands that we played with that were much worse than most of the concerts I <laughs> fortunately paid to see. I, I don't know. The bar was re- lowered, but uh, two that stand out that I guess were sort of bad experiences were the i went to the night in 1994 i went to the wmms which is a big rock station in cleveland they had something called buzzard palooza and <laughs> i remember that yeah it was uh it was a free show and 
I think it's the only free show I've gone to since, and there and, and there's a reason. Uh, huge Bill, Green Day headlined, and Collective Soul was on it. Moist was on it. A band called Fury at the Slaughterhouse, Pansy Division, and God's Child were the bands that I remember seeing. Really, of all those bands, the only one that I walked away remember, remembering was Moist. Um, I had hadn't seen them before, and 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 kind of got into them. The thing that made it Way worse. Fortunately, we decided to leave early since most of the bands that we saw were so lackluster and we had been sitting in the sun all day, which meant we we didn't see Green Day, uh, which turned out to be a good decision because as we were leaving, that we, we come to find out when we got home, there was a riot um, because it was a free show. They had basically not thought, thought this through and decided they had a, a, too many people in the venue and weren't going to allow any more people in before Green Day played. Well, people lost their minds who had been waiting in line to see Green Day. Um, they apparently uh, went crazy, started trying to rush the gates, sort of a mob scene going on. And Green Day hits the stage. Um, and I think f- uh, from what I've heard, they basically pulled the plug on it like within the first song and told them they couldn't play and they were shutting the whole thing down. So I guess Green Day ended up playing, playing Cleveland a couple months later for a $5 show to try to make it up. And apparently the fans, um, this was at Blossom, apparently the fans destroyed the lawn at Blossom as a <laughs> as a statement onto the pre- previous concerts. So. That's not surprising because that's going to come up again later about the lawn at Blossom. Um, worst show I ever saw, um, actually 90s were pretty good to me. In 2000, I saw the Smashing Pumpkins on the Machina tour. And this was not long after I had just seen them when they reunited with uh, Jimmy Chamberlain. And that show is going to come up later. But on this one, it was in Hera Arena in Dayton. And um, it was horrifyingly bad. They, at this point, were tuning the guitars down. So they decided to play every song in the catalog tuned down. So now you're hearing, like, Disarm and rocket and all these like songs that are in regular tuning tuned down to like metal tuning that like all the bands were using in the late nineties to get like a really heavy sound. They did a cover of uh rock on that David Essex song that was covered by uh, a, a soap opera star in the nineties or in the eighties. They just, it was just a horrifying, like, and the, what was really, really disturbing about the show was there was nobody in front of the stage, like except for some diehards. People were just sort of milling about the arena. It was one of those things where like it was a sports arena. So you had seating and then you had an open floor. And the, I swear to God, the open floor was like mostly empty. And the band looked completely pissed off that they were playing there. There was no opener. So they started at like 730. I think they were done by like nine. And there was they just walked off and laughed. But they did like all the songs you would know, but just completely different than the way that you'd ever heard them. And it was I don't know if it was some sort of social experiment to see how much he could piss people off if he was just having a bad day, but everything sounded horrible and it was by far my worst concert going experience. So speaking of worst, let's talk about the worst venue we've ever seen a concert in. I'm gonna start because we just mentioned Blossom. Blossom is probably one of the worst places I've ever seen a concert. I went to see Buzzard Fest in 96. This was one of those radio station festival concerts, and it was the Nixons, 
311 hmm. Holy Barbarians, which was Ian Asbury's band after the cult for one album. Um, it was No Doubt uh, and The Tragically Hip, which really was the only reason I wanted to go. And then there was a side stage that had a couple other bands. Now, the sound was terrible from the main stage. I don't know what it was, but it was just, it was really like echoey and bassy. And then the side stage, because there had been rain, was a mess. And Triple Fast Action played, and then some other bands like Poe played and Goldfinger. And then the refreshments got up there. I don't know if you guys remember the refreshments. They mm-hmm. had one single, uh, which I, Banditos, I think is the name. Mm-hmm. So we about reviewed two, that record, Tim. We did review that record. The, about two songs in, I don't know what the lead singer did to piss off the crowd, but they didn't make it to song three because their gear was destroyed by mud. <laughs> I mean, just obliterated. And pretty much the side stage ended at that point. Now, that was... So you got a side stage that became useless. You have a main stage that sounds terrible. Then the worst thing is when you go to a concert, the bathrooms. So the bathroom at for the men, Jay's probably laughing because he knows what I'm going to say. It was like a trough, but it was circular. <laughs> so when you were standing at the trough uh, to pee, <laughs> you were staring at other guys peeing in front of you. You're basically, it's a, a, a circle of dicks all peeing into a tub with a fountain in the middle washing the pee away. It's the most Uh. disturbing idea of how people should go to the bathroom that I can think of, other than people pooping in a circle. Out in the, out the open. As if rock rock shows hadn't like lowered our humanity enough. That, that, you know what I mean? It's like, we gotta just bring it. Caveman in the bathroom. It was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Um... So that's my worst venue. David, worst venue you ever saw abandoned? Electric Factory in Philly has the worst sound ever, but I'd, I'd never been there in the 90s. It but, was bad when I was thinking, When I was thinking back to really bad places to see shows, it would be like anything CMJ where you have a bunch of attendees who are mingling and talking and then trying to see a slowcore band, like trying to see low huh. during their I Can Live in Hope tour when they're just getting started or i uh, saw low at, C- Cody, at cmj you know i actually saw low in 96 at the at knitting CMJ. factory yeah oh i was there with, with vernon reed he like he played at that show too I, I i was one of the few people not talking i remember getting i got shushed <laughs> oh you I got t- shushed i got shushed because i was talking and so much and i was like oh. i'm at a rock show <laughs> I, I think i'm allowed to talk it was david I, he that was might have been one. me. Oh my god! Because they were super quiet. <laughs> you son of a bitch! I, that, that that was the quietest slow has ever been during that first tour. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was so quiet in there. It was like being in a library. Yeah, um, I, I did get a chance to see Low again at um, at a church in Philadelphia, and they played in the actual church in pews, and you know they had a captive audience. And uh, that that was magical. So thank goodness I lasted long enough to see him again. Jeff, how about you? Worst venue you've seen abandoned in the nineties? The one that comes to my mind is the House of Blues in Orlando. Um, I've seen a lot of great shows there too, um, but that was just always one of those venues where, you know, for what you're paying and for the the level of band you know that would play there, the sound was just never. Um, 
how I felt it should be. Um, and again, I've seen some fun shows where I guess I just didn't care as much about the sound. Um, but I just have some, some memories of, of spending way too much money, you know, for a show where, uh, the sound was, I felt like I could have, you know, done better with a, you know, a home radio and, you know, a, like mm. a play school microphone type of thing. So. <laughs> Jay, uh, where's venue? One of them was Blossom or Polaris uh, Amphitheater mm. in Columbus. Um, I, I just always struggle with the sheds because it seemed like it was more at times could be more about the scene of what was going on on the lawn mm-hmm. and everything else than it was about the show. So sometimes it was hard to f- focus on the bands. The other one, I guess, is uh, St. Andrew's Hall. I didn't I didn't love. Uh, it's kind of just a big room, all flat. Essentially, if you're not in the front, you're not seeing anything. Um, yeah. I just remember being very claustrophobic. And Newport is one I wanted to throw out just because mm-hmm. it's an old style theater. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, again, every town, every city has one of these, you know, really old historic theater with the balcony. For some reason, I don't know, like sometimes I've seen some bands there that just sound amazing and they can just carry that room and the crowd is right. And I've seen other bands in that venue where they just seem lost and it's echoey in the but the crowd's just not fo- not paying attention. It's just yeah, it's a weird place. You just never know what you're going to get when you go in there. You might kind of get a a real train wreck, or you might get something magical. Katie, worst place you saw a band? Um, it was actually my first official concert. I was a freshman in high school, and before I became a music nerd, I was an art nerd, and went to Europe with my art class. And on our itinerary, it had said there would be a music event. And this school-related music event was actually at a bar in Paris to see Soul Asylum. Um, Which sounds like it could be cool or could be like the lead-in to some sort of romantic comedy of the 90s. But (laughs) it was actually just a hot mess to take a group of high schoolers to this essentially bar or discotheque, I suppose. It was just the wrong venue for the band. Like they were playing soul asylum songs in like a dance club. Mm. Um, and it was very disorienting. And I had never been in a bar or been to a concert. So most of us being youths were uh, pretty confused and it was not a great experience, but sort mm. of a fun story. So an- another another thing I wanted to cover is... Um, an audience that you saw a show with that either ruined it for you or, or ruined the show for the band. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of my favorite bands is the tragically hip. And I saw them, I drove up to Cobo hall in Detroit in um, the fall of 96. And I was super excited because I'd never seen the band before live. Um, I would end up seeing them about five more times in the nineties, but this was my first time going to see them. And I didn't get really good seats. In fact, I got the last row in the stadium. And so, okay, that's that's kind of sucks. The guys in front of us were from Canada, and they had a Canadian flag. And they stood up the entire time waving the Canadian flag. <laughs> so I never saw the show. And the insult to injury is the hip release that show is their only live album. So I have a document of a show that I went to that I never really got to see. Mm-hmm. 
You got to see the Canadian flag. If you I got to see the that. Canadian flag. Wow. It's a shame yeah. they didn't put it out on DVD. Yeah, that would have, there would have been a, just a really pissed off American in the last row behind a Canadian flag. Uh, so let's go around the room. Worst crowd or, yeah, the worst crowd that you saw at a show. Jay, how about you? I remember being sort of uh, disappointed overall in the show, not because of the band, but because of the crowd for the Catherine Wheel show that we saw in St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. Yeah. We got there early because we knew the, what the venue was like, so we were up front. I don't know. We just had this group of, like, at the bros before the term bros existed and their girlfriends just being so, like, obnoxious. And I don't know. I mean, you're there to see, like, a shoegaze band, you know? I mean, I know they get heavy and and stuff, but they, they were, like, jumping around like idiots and just knocking into everybody, and it was, like, not that kind of show. The same they thing were wearing for the- shiny shirts. Yeah, it was it was so annoying. It was so like not the right vibe for what I don't know what I expect yeah. from a Catherine Wheel show. And the other one was the Cult. Um, mm-hmm. I saw them twice and uh, once in '99 and then in 2001. They were f- amazing. Uh, the crowd again was I don't know. You just had like these knuckleheads that showed up that thought it was a punk show or something or a hardcore show, and they were trying to mosh and stuff, and it just. <laughs> not you know what i mean it's just you're at a hard rock you're kind of a classic hard rock show you like you don't it's just not what you do so right just remember being annoyed by that because the bands were great and we had great like positions on the floor and stuff we could see everything great i just remember being way too preoccupied with the knuckleheads around me david worst audience you saw show with Anyone who's nostalgic about 90s concerts needs to remember that everybody smoked Mm-hmm. And you were just choking the whole time. And then there were always two girls with clove cigarettes that made it even worse. So at CBGB's, packed crowd to see the Faith Healers. And I am right up near the stage. Love this band, you know, finally in America. And there is this drunk French chick dancing next to me like she is in Woodstock, the movie, <laughs> close up. <laughs> Chain-smoking cigarettes, dancing with the cigarette in her left hand, waving it all around, and burning the fuck out of me every five minutes. <laughs> oh, God. And so the band was amazing, but I had to keep pushing this girl away and and getting singed. And ugh. I think we've all had at least that one experience with the dancing girl at a show. Oh, at yeah. least they don't have cigarettes now. No. Right. It's true. It's less dangerous. Yeah. Now they're vaping. Jeff, worst audience for a show. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of funny because my threshold for tolerance at concerts is is, was pretty high. You know, being you know kind of a you know punk fan and and going to a lot of punk shows, like I really don't mind you know people knocking into me and all that kind of stuff at a show. But there was one particular show. uh, It was a less than Jake show. Um, I don't remember the year you know, probably 97 or somewhere in that vein. And it was, you know, kind of like if you could combine the the French girl with the cigarette with, you know, the bro that Jay mentioned, um, (laughs) that was kind of what I was dealing with. Like this dude just like, I don't know if he just didn't like the way I looked or what his deal was, but he just kept like getting agitated and getting like 
on me and like trying to like I don't know what his deal was. He was I, he initially I think what happened was is that he wanted me to lift him up so he could crowd surf, and I never do that. I'm I'm a big guy and I'm a tall guy and I'm asked at every show I go to if I can you know get lift people up big and small and I never do it because I don't like it and and of course the person who lifts the the person up to crowd surf is usually the first one that gets kicked in the face and I don't like getting kicked in the face so. Um, <laughs> So, so he was not happy with me. And so, um, he just kept bothering me. And then kind of towards the end of the show, um, I'm not a violent person, but I was that night in that, um, he, he, he eventually got up and, and was, was just being really douchey. And so, um, I, I was in the, and my buddy Rob, who was with me still tells the story. It's pretty great, but, um, he was going by and I just had the opportunity to, to, um, elbow him in the face and and so I did, and then I quickly left, and um, that was that. But yeah, I just that that memory stuck out because he was just so drunk and so obnoxious and all over me for some reason. And so I got my little piece of revenge and, and got out of there. To me, throwing an elbow is not violent if it's in re- if it's in self defense based on somebody's douchey behavior. Well, if I appreciate that. If because I have thrown a few <laughs> elbows in my time. Because people were, you know, like Jay mentioned that the Catherine Wheel show, I'm pretty sure I stuck my elbow up a little extra high because the dude in the shiny shirt wanted to mosh to <laughs> Black Metallic. <laughs> um, well, it's a five minute major, but you left the concert, so it's okay. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's talk about the worst experience you had around a concert, but not because of the band. And I'll and I'll explain this, and in, in, uh, it'll make sense. So the Jay was talking about the cult show. That we went to. The second one was when they were on tour for Beyond Good and Evil. And we went to see them at the Newport Music Hall. It was in May. And I remember it being pretty hot in the venue. And oh, before, yeah. I don't remember if you that. remember this, Jay, but we went to Chipotle for dinner before that. It was kind <laughs> of a big deal because Chipotle had just opened in Columbus. And uh-huh. it was right next to the venue. So you could literally go to <laughs> Chipotle and then walk over to the Newport Music Hall. So... Besides the fact that the audience were being assholes where we were, my stomach started churning really bad for meeting that Chipotle. And <laughs> the Newport... I'm remembering this because I we, basically I just remember you disappearing and then it was like, hey, Tim missed the whole show. Yep, that's exactly what happened because I went to the bathroom and realized there are no doors on any of these stalls and I'm about to have a, a big problem here. <laughs> so I went back to Chipotle shut the door and locked the bathroom and was in there for 45 minutes <laughs> in pain. Oh, and I went back and they were in the encore. And that was basically the whole show for me. I saw like the first three songs and that was it. So that pretty much ruined the show. Yeah. So let's go around the room. It doesn't have to be <laughs> fecally related, but the worst experience you had at a show, Katie, I'm going to start with you since you didn't have one for a divorced audience. Right. Well, you know, this is sneaking into the early thousands, but this was the only one I could really think of because it really sticks out to me. I've been a big fan of Jimmy Eat World since Clarity, probably, um, but they're probably in my top five or ten favorite bands, certainly of the 90s. And um, when Bleed American came out, their show was on a Monday night in Cleveland, and I went to school here in Columbus, which is about a two-hour drive, and... Um, I'm a morning person, but I didn't have 
class on Tuesday morning because it was like slated for me to go into the schools. And since it was the beginning of a quarter, I didn't have class that morning yet because I hadn't been assigned to school. So my friend and I drove up on a Monday night knowing we could sleep in the next day. So we got back from the concert, which was amazing, at like two or three in the morning. And I slept in until like 11 a.m., which is really, really late for me, even, you know, before I had kids. And I woke up and I'll, I'll never forget, I had all these AIM messages. I mean, I probably had like 15 windows open and it was crazy. And it turned out I had slept through 9-11. So, so I woke up the next morning from Jimmy Eat World and I had missed like the entire event, didn't know what was going on, was completely disoriented. People were like, you know, trying to find each other. Classes were canceled. It was like complete chaos. And that's what I think about now when I think of Jimmy Eat World. Wow. Right. That went dark. I, I you know, I'm serious. I'm a serious lady. It's okay. true. Okay. Who wants to follow that one? <laughs> Who wants to follow 9-11? I, I might I know, be able right? to combine both your stories into one. Oh, okay, Jay. <laughs> this, it's, it's no 9-11, but it's, it's you know, kind of dark. Mine was literally 9-11, Jay. Yeah, I know. You you pulled the 9-11 card. I did. I should have gone last. We should. Yeah, you should have dropped the mic. We should just end the, the whole round table. Right. So similar to Tim, uh, K- <laughs> KFC had come out with a. <laughs> a honey barbecue chicken. <laughs> and. Tell us more about the chicken, Jay. Oh, man. Take me out of the toilet. <laughs> so, anyway. Went to the Outerly B show, and uh, unlike mm-hmm. what Tim got to do by going next door, this place is in the middle of nowhere. So the only option was to go into those horrific bathrooms with no doors. And obviously, it's you know they position those right in front of where the entrance is, so every person that comes in is just staring at you. So I was humiliated there, which uh, you know was pretty awful. Then they come out and Our Lady Peace is playing, and in the middle of their set, they announced that Jeff Buckley had died that day. <sighs> it's like, jeez. So yeah, that was uh, no fault of the band, but uh, a double too, whammy. Too yeah, double whammy for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, uh, David, please follow that with your worst experience. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to talk about how hard it was to get on guest lists back then. <laughs> Jeez, got nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, the CBGB's bathroom was pretty bad. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I went there once. There was like a and... toilet up on a ledge, and then there were two urinals next to each other, and Gross. I caught a guy staring at my dick and masturbating while I was peeing. That's wow. Hmm. I don't know. That's pretty bad. No one, no one was pooping, though. Or it's a compliment, <laughs> one or the other. I'm not sure. Yeah. Jeff, worst I, experience. I I can't compare to any of this. <laughs> like I, so I'll try to lighten it up a little bit. I went to um, a warp tour with some friends of mine in late '90s, and it was at the end of the day, and um, it'd been you know hot. It's in Florida for crying out loud in July, and long day, hot day, fun, but you know tired. And my buddy decided he was going to help someone jumpstart their car and so um he did that successfully and he was like hey man can you close the hood of my car i'm like sure okay 
Well, this is going to sound really dumb, but like I had never seen a hood like he had um, where it was propped up with the little stick mm-hmm. thing. You know, I'd always kind of dealt with the ones that just kind of like slammed shut on their own. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so I just started trying to like shut it and it wouldn't shut. So I just kept pushing harder and um, because I didn't put the stick down. So I totally broke my buddy's hood of his car after he was being a good Samaritan trying to jumpstart oh. someone's car after a long tired <laughs> oh, day yeah. at work tour. And um, he was really good about it um, and um, somehow talks to me to this day. So that's, again, again I can't compare with, you know, excrement or 911. <laughs> but that's, that's all I got. All right, so let's take this in another direction. Please. Um, Let's talk about a time where you either skipped the opening band or you thought that they were bad and then many years later went, man, I am an idiot. I actually really like that band. I can't believe I A, thought they were terrible or B, missed them. I'll give you a quick example. I mentioned that I saw the Pumpkins twice. Uh, Once was in 99 when they reunited with Jimmy Chamberlain and I believe Melissa Oftimer was on bass at that point. They played at Bogarts in Cincinnati which is a small venue, relatively small. It's only about 1,000 people. It was the second show of them getting back with Jimmy Chamberlain. They opened the show with I Am One, and the crowd went nuts, and it was basically a two-hour pogo fest. They just played every song you'd want them to play, the way that they're supposed to play it. They, they reached back into the old stuff from Gish and Pisces Iscariot and all the old songs. It was tons of energy. opening band was this stoner rock band from California that I had not heard of and did not care for. They were called Queens of the Stone Age. And <laughs> it wasn't the lineup that it wasn't with Nick Oliveri and the, the rated R lineup. It was different people in the band at that point. And I didn't care for them. Um, obviously now I'm regretting not paying attention when they were playing. But uh, that was that would be my example of uh, blowing it on the opening band. Jeff, how about you? You know, that's a tough one. Um, there wasn't, this is going to sound kind of nerdy, but I'm always the kind of guy that likes to get to the show early. So, like, the concept of missing an opening band is is kind of beyond me. Um, I'd rather, like, you know, sit through, like, the awful high school local band just to get there and make sure that, you know, I can see all the other openers. But there was definitely a show that I can think of. This was early 2000s, I think. Um, this was the first time Hot Water Music had reunited mm. and was touring. Um, and of course, this ironically was at the House of Blues in Orlando to bring it back. And one of the openers um, was a band I was familiar with, but didn't like fully appreciate and get to love until after 
um, this particular show, um, and that was the the California band Sam I Am, and um, they um, opened that show uh, for Hot Water. It was um, again one of the first Florida shows of you know this pretty iconic Gainesville punk band you know reuniting, and um, uh, I just remember um, like seeing Sam I Am and. And knowing of them, but not really, I, you know, I had, I liked clumsy and, and remembered that record. Um, but then seeing them kind of started me on this path of, of really loving them. And they're actually one of my favorite bands now. So that's, that's the best I've got. Cool. That's a good band. David opener. Yeah. See, it's a really hard one. Cause you go back through even setlist.fm and not all these concerts are in there. It's hard to figure out what you miss. But I did, I did find a stub. I went to see Jane's Addiction at the RPI Fieldhouse, and Lush opened. And I don't remember mm. a thing about that. I don't, I don't, maybe I saw them and didn't care, but I'm much more into shoegaze now than I am L.A. drunken hard rock. Uh, so I would love to go back mm. in time and pay attention to Lush. Yeah. Uh, miss them terribly. Katie? You know, I still haven't atoned for this one, but I have to mention it because Tim knows about it. It's in our wedding vows that I mention it tonight. I, at the same fantastic Radiohead concert I saw in Lakewood, Teenage Fan Club opened, and the uh, crowd was horrific to them. They just were so excited to see Radiohead, and they were, you know, they were blowing up so much at the time. And I think there were a lot of high schoolers probably in in the audience, and so no one knew really who they were we were children and we booed them horrifically for no reason so much so that tom york came out and told us to apologize (laughs) he asked the crowd to apologize um and we did but uh i still haven't ever listened to them even though i know they're good i know they're good how did you Um, radiohead fans are so bandwagon-esque right and i was like you know i was 15 i totally went with the crowd i did it was peer pressure how does the whole crowd apologize? I think there was some sort of counting. Uh-oh. There was like a three count from Tom York, and then we all said it together insincerely. <laughs> <laughs> it was really bad, though. I mean, for the for you know Tom York to come out and yell at us. Jay opener. I'm kind of like Jeff. I yeah I I have nightmares about missing bands. You know what I mean? So I, I'm always there. I always try to get there to see everybody, even if they're terrible. I think I have a a fear that I'm going to basically the scenario you just described, I'm going to miss some great band that uh, I could have seen if I just got my ass there earlier. Um, I will say that um, the closest thing I can get to is that Alice in Chains opened for Van Halen in the early 90s. This was on their first record. Uh, I'm not sure if Man in the Box was even on the radio yet or it had just been put on the radio. And it was at Blossom, so this is a big, like, shed amphitheater. It was just not remarkable in any way. And I kind of liked the band. I had heard um, Sea of Sorrow on a, I can't remember, I think a sampler cassette or something. So I was kind of familiar with the band, and um, I was looking forward to seeing them. And I just remember them not being that good. Uh, They couldn't fill the space. They sounded thin. They couldn't, they seemed lost up on that stage. And then I saw them... Obviously, I, I, you know, had liked some of their stuff since then and kind of been a casual fan. And then I saw them a couple years ago at Rock on the Range, which is a huge 
rock festival in a stadium in Columbus and they blew everybody off the stage. They were incredible. It was like a whole different band. They sounded huge. You could tell they had sort of found their way in terms of, or maybe, the, I don't know, maybe the audience came around, like in terms of what we expect from rock shows had changed so much that it just was easier for them, but it couldn't have been more, more of a different experience from then till, till, uh, till that show. Stepping away from the, um, the stories and the, and the antidotes here, I want to ask about how many of you guys went to the touring festivals in the 90s? Like you had your Lilith Fair, your Lollapalooza, your Horde Tour, your Warp Tour, your, um, what are the other ones I'm thinking that are from the 90s? There's, there's other ones, but Show of uh, Electronic Hands. Katie, you went to some? I did. I went to Lollapalooza. And yeah. Lilith Fair? And Lilith Fair twice. Uh, Jay, did you go to any festivals besides the uh, free outdoor show? <laughs> Buzzer Palooza? Uh, I, I didn't. Okay. I think that had soured me so much <laughs> of what a festival was like. David, did you go to any? I, I think mostly the Lollapaloozas. I remember the okay. first one with uh, Butthole Surfers and an empty mm-hmm. audience and Gibby Haynes shooting a shotgun into the audience repeatedly uh <laughs> and then the last one i remember was uh i think bc boys and smashing pumpkins traded headlining and okay. thank goodness uh smashing pumpkins were the headliners when i saw them so that i left early and beat traffic nice it's always a good thing jeff yeah. how about you um i went to the warp tour most of the uh, years in the 90s um actually the the second year they put it on was the first year that i went um and is one of those concerts that always sticks out in my mind um as being um a really great show um that day i got to see uh rocket from the crypt face to face pennywise um let's see who else was there down by law dance hall crashers but in reality, that was all about getting to see Rocket from the Crypt, um, one of my favorite bands um, of all time. And um, until their recent reunions, um, it was the only time I got to see them. So uh, that was in their heyday. That was in support of Scream, Dracula, Scream, you know, the the, the silver disco ball type shirts, the, the spinning wheel that determined their set list, um, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and that, that was awesome. But yeah, I went to... Uh, the warp tour um, all throughout uh, the nineties um, and, and enjoyed them for the most part. So I want to ask everybody, you know, it seems like the touring festival was a very nineties thing in the last decade. It seems to have become more of a destination festival situation with regards to places like Coachella and Bonnaroo, Bonnaroo and Lollapalooza is now a, like a, it's in Chicago or it's, I think there's some other like, one-offs around the world. I think they do one in South America. Does anybody have theories on why that changed? Because um, I have one, but I want to throw it out there to see what other people think. And you could just, anybody can go if they have an idea of why that, why that changed. It's cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper to produce. It's why all the like yeah. classic rock acts are, you know, doing the stints in Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, they can make the same amount of money without having to haul you know, five truckloads of gear around uh, to different cities and deal with different uh, venues and, and all that. Yeah, actually, I had I had a similar thought. Mine was that it was it was gas prices because mm. gas prices rose so sharply in the 2000s that it 
it did not make economic sense to haul all those trucks around. But that's that's a more specific point. But you're right, Jay. Just overall cost of production probably just didn't make it sense to. I mean, I would imagine. Ma- yeah, a lot of the bands that you would want to go see now aren't as funded by a large label anymore either. Right. Is demand different? Well, obviously not because those 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 destination festivals do incredibly well in terms of bringing out tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and it seems like they're they're they've popped up all over the place for all different I mean, Ohio has multiple mm-hmm. destination festival shows now. Whereas, you know, you're you were lucky to get a touring band to come through Columbus or Cleveland or Cincinnati. That's a rarity these days. Whereas you know, you can put on a big festival over two days out in Nelsonville, which mm-hmm. who's who's who heard of Nelsonville before they started having the Nelsonville con- the concert there. So, any other anybody else want to chime in on that? Yeah, it's it's uh, probably you know just a bigger bang for the buck for the people who put these on, like to think about putting on one huge show over the course of two or three days in one location. Um, as opposed to all the expense of going around the country, like it probably allows them to have that much more money to get the acts that will then get more people to go to their, you know, two or three day festival would be my, would be my thought. Mm-hmm. There so, may be something to corporate ownership of venues also that you oh, can't, yeah. if you do a huge tour, it needs to all go to the same owner's. And that that's not so easy nowadays. Yeah, that's true too. So tying that into uh, the one big destination festival that they had in the 90s, that was Woodstock, which took place in 94 and 99. Even at the time, it seemed like a nostalgia grab to have those shows. I was pretty cynical about the, the two Woodstocks in the 90s. I remember the first one, you know, was on MTV and there was sort of an iconic moment with green day being pelted with with mud um you can actually watch a video of it on on youtube and it's pretty funny to see them their set just destroyed because of mud and then the 99 one was the famously they i think they burnt down like half the half the stage when uh the chili peppers were playing and it seemed like i don't know it it seemed like those two provided good bookends for the 90s because the first one in 94 was just about when radio and mainstream America had fully caught on to the alternative movement in, in terms of it being popular culture or it being all, you know, fully embraced by popular culture. And, you know, you had your flannels for sale and JC Penny for thirty nine ninety nine and that kind of stuff. And um, 99 was basically the termination, the final death knell of, alternative in the 90s thanks to bands like Limp Biscuit and the new metal and stuff like that am I too negative on the Woodstocks or am I on point with thinking that they were pretty awful anybody want to salvage them in any way well I think anytime you try to recreate something that just happened organically you're you're not it's not a good it's not a good uh, recipe for success let's put it that way so it's kind of remarkable that the first one even was not a complete disaster yeah they so. really should have stopped at the one um but they just couldn't help themselves i'm sure but uh you know they really should have stopped at the one 
you know, marking the 25th anniversary of Woodstock and, and let it be. Um, but they, they couldn't help themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. At least the first one, they didn't burn it down. Or right. Yeah, they, they actually let it stand at the end. I heard, I know they, they, they had some bad issues with, like, bathrooms and water and stuff like that but yeah i've actually i've actually wondered if um with kind of thinking about and and reading uh, preparing for for this uh, episode i then started wondering if someone would get the bright idea of doing a 50th anniversary of woodstock in 2019 Hmm. then i got really scared because i think (laughs) that someone is going to try to do that yeah that oh i'm sure live nation is working on that right now Yeah. I have no doubt about that. Um, well, it, it was really Napster in 99 that changed everything. Woodstock was just symbolic of problems. That's but, true. You know, uh, right. Festivals have always been problematic. From the first Woodstock to Altamont, nothing's ever yeah. gone smoothly. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the first Woodstock was a logistic nightmare. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's thought of as like being kind <clears> of maybe because it was all harmless and uh, the media didn't exist in the form that it does now and i don't know we kind of look back on it as being charming <laughs> as opposed to a complete disaster right because right, we weren't there yeah and it, right. it like, sounds horrible i can't imagine being there with no porta potties no food right. for three days and raining the whole time yeah. and there's not enough footage of that stuff you know all the footage is of all of the great stuff whereas if it happened obviously in the 90s there's cameras everywhere recording everything. I mean, and if it happens now, I mean, it's up instantly on social media. So the footage in the movie looks really good. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's end this on an aspirational note. Let's talk about bands you really would have liked to have seen, but never got a chance to in the 1990s or tours, or maybe you saw a band later, but you wish you had seen them earlier, whatever it is. Feel free to share it. Jay, I'm going to start with you. Band or artist you wish you had seen in the 90s? Uh, I've, Dinosaur Jr. is one of my favorite bands, and I've never seen them live. to have seen them in the 90s would have been even better but just seeing them period would be great um my second one would be early manic street preachers um we got to see them in 2008 it was great show but they're a very different band now than they were you know in the early to mid 90s and i think it would have been uh really cool to have seen them then i concur david how about you band you wish you'd seen in the 90s all right this is a message to everyone who's in high school or college do not miss a concert because you have a paper due. Uh, I, I, I missed Oasis on their first tour 
at Wetlands and Maxwell's. Oh. I, I had tickets to both and uh, ended up never seeing them live, even though the first couple albums are pretty amazing. Jay and I saw them on the Standing on the Shoulder of Giants tour. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. They, Travis opened for him and Travis blew him off the stage. There you go. Yeah. So I, seeing them in their heyday would have been great. At a tiny club like Maxwell's or Wetlands? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jeff, they, they how about opened, you? They opened for Ivy at Wetlands. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I have a, uh, when I was thinking about uh, the, the answer to this question, like I just started writing down bands that I wish I had seen and, and then got very sad. So I have a pretty lengthy list, but um, we'll, we'll just kind of run through them quickly. Um, Hum, I wish I had um, mm. had the chance to see that band uh, live in the 90s. Um, Sunny Day Real Estate, um, <clears throat> Rival Schools. Um, I wish I had gotten to see Jawbox. Um, mm. In their heyday, I wish I would have gotten to see like kind of core era Stone Temple Pilots. Um, not the version that's out there now. Um, no offense to anyone, Scott Weiland. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could have seen a band called Four Squirrels um, out of Gainesville, yeah. Florida. They kind of had a kind of had a sad ending to to that band, where half yeah. of the band died in a in a van crash after playing uh, CMJ Festival. Actually, so I would have loved to have gotten a chance to see them. And then, lastly, although it would not have been in their heyday, um, I really wish I could have gotten a chance to see the Ramones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katie. Um, I kind of did the same thing Jeff did, so I've got a little list here. It probably isn't that. It probably shows my my age and my era, I guess. But I really would have liked to have seen Jeff Buckley. Um, he's my all-time favorite artist, probably. Big fan as a singer, as a vocalist. I was supposed to see Fiona Apple, and she refunded the tickets. It's the only time I've ever been refunded a ticket. So um, she decided to make one more ill-advised video that didn't go anywhere and it was actually my favorite track from title so um i never got to see her i was bummed about that i had stone temple pilots on my list too i would have liked to see them circa 90s um i would have liked to see nine inch nails too um just because they were they were from cleveland too never saw them probably wouldn't have been allowed to go to that show during the 90s um and then my my other ones were mazzy star and portishead just because those were singers that i really Mm. connected with so i don't know that there would have been much to see in a mazzy star show but i would have liked to have shaken hope sandoval's hand and you know learned what i could learn from her (laughs) i really liked them that's a good list i can tell you i i saw stone table pilots on the tiny music tour and they were pretty good but they did that thing where they did an acoustic set halfway through and just like knocked the momentum out of the stadium. It was like eight songs playing mm-hmm. acoustic guitars. I was like, that's a little bit too much, fellas. That's just, yeah. I know you want to do the whole like Led Zeppelin thing, <clears throat> but. Um, and Jeff, I got to see Hum in a basement in wow. uh, Toledo, Ohio. Phenomenal. Also, I was deaf for about three days afterwards. <laughs> they were awesome. so loud. That's now, awesome. I would like to have seen. The infamous Guns N' Roses Metallica tour, in which I believe ended one of the shows in Montreal with James Hetfield catching on fire because um, he stepped on a a, well, a pot. That didn't end the show. The show ended with uh, oh, that's Guns right. N' Roses walking off stage in a riot. That's right. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I want to be at that specific show, but 
seeing those two <laughs> bands probably would have been pretty crazy and awesome. On the flip side, because that's you know ridiculously over the top, seeing those two bands, I would have liked to have seen Uncle Tupelo touring for Still Feel Gone, which is my favorite Uncle Tupelo record, their second album. I've seen Jeff Tweedy, I've seen Jay Farrar in multiple incarnations with both, and uh, would have liked to have seen what they did on stage together as either a three-piece or a four-piece. And I'll, I'll echo your sentiment, Jay. I would have loved to have seen the Manx Street Preachers back in the original Holy Bible tour, uh, you know, lineup or Gold Against the Soul, Generation Terrorist, one of those albums. See what they looked, looked like as a four-piece and um, with uh, Richie James up there not playing guitar, just strumming <laughs> strumming an unplugged plugged in guitar. Other than that, I'd also would have liked to have seen Pulp uh, in their mm-hmm. heyday and see what Jarvis Cocker was like on stage, because I heard he was kind of a maniac on stage at times. So uh, that was it for me, and that's it for this episode. We did a very good job. We went a little bit over what it were uh, usually for roundtables, but that's okay. We got a lot of good stuff in. I need to go around the virtual room and thank everybody for joining us. David, Jeff, Katie, who's sitting next to me. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for um, coming on this week. Jeff, we can find you at uh, Rocket Fuel. Is it .com? Uh, RocketFuelPodcast.com. RocketFuelPodcast.com. And then you'll have your next Punktastic entry coming up soon. Yeah, just um, if you go to Punktastic.com and then do like a search um, like for the word buzzbin, um, my columns will come up there and, and the latest one on the uh, Miami punk band quit should be coming up here in the next few days. Excellent. David, I assume we'll find you on a softball field in New Jersey somewhere. Absolutely. Or on Twitter at, at dirty Gert. Excellent. Katie, you're on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, you can see me in various children's recitals or <laughs> if you'd like to see a musical written by fourth graders performed on ORF instruments. I can set you up with that. Excellent. All right. That's it for this week. I want to remind everybody listening to please head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com. If you have an album you would like us to review, we're actually going to be getting to some album reviews in the next coming weeks. Uh, Some good ones that I hope people uh, enjoy. Uh, We actually have an interview to go along with one of those album reviews. So, Uh, Look forward to posting that next week. And then, uh, of course, if you like what you heard, please head on over to Dig Me Out or to um, iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. So for Jay, I am Tim, and we are out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. (laughs) 